Thank you, Julie and praise team. Well, good morning, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to the epistle of Romans, the letter to the, to the Romans, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible or if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like to encourage you to follow along. You can do so by pulling up your Bible app or grabbing one of the Bibles in front of you. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of different texts of Scripture, and some of the ideas that we're talking about today are very big and very weighty, and so I would encourage you to, uh, to follow along. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know you've given it to us as a means and as a source of our life and nourishment. And so, Father, would you do what no man can do? We stand totally, totally independent, dependent upon you for success during this hour. So, Father, I pray that your word would minister to our hearts by your spirit. So to that end, O oh God, I pray that my words, the words of man, that they would fall to the ground and be blown away. They can be forgotten. Let only your words, the words of God, remain. Let them take up residence and root in our hearts, and let them bear fruit to the glory of Christ and to the gladness of your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing our look at the five solas. The five solas of the faith. Five solas are a way that we can summarize foundational doctrines of Christianity. In the last couple of weeks, we've talked about a little bit of the historical context. We won't repeat that today. But they're simply five foundational doctrines of Christianity. And today, we're going to consider how salvation is by faith alone. I want to begin, because it's a complex idea, with an imaginary scenario. A scenario that might help us get our minds ready for the matters that are at stake. Suppose with me that there was a man, a good man, a very good man, a moral and upright citizen, one who is very eager to obey the law and to uphold it and, and, and to protect the laws of his nation. He's a good man. But he's also a family man. He's a loving father. He has three sons, all of whom he adores very much. This man, this father, would do anything for his sons. He would even die for them. 
if the need came about. Well, this good man and this good father, he's not only a father and a man, but he's also a well-respected judge, a prestigious judge known all across the nation for his integrity and his uprightness and his fairness. Many judges can be corrupted, but not this man. Many judges perhaps could be bought, but not this man. And for this reason, in fact, he's the only judge in the land. Well, one day, this good man and this good father and this good, just judge gets a terrifying phone call from a detective saying that his youngest son was driving drunk and creamed into the back of a suburban and killed four of the five occupants, all of whom were children. And because of this crime, the youngest son will be charged with first-degree murder on multiple counts, which is a capital crime and carries with it a death sentence. And what's tricky is that because this judge and father is the only judge in the land, this good father must also be the good judge in this very case. So now the father judge faces a dilemma. On the one hand, he's a judge, so he must uphold the law. But on the other hand, he's also the boy's father, and he loves his son. He could just declare his son innocent, but that would be a blatant miscarriage of justice. He could just sentence his son to death, but how could a loving father do that? This, my brothers and sisters, illustrates the dilemma of God's justice. You see, God is not only a fatherly God of love who wants to forgive, but he is equally and also just as much a God of justice who must do right. The dilemma is real. If you look down in chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says that sinners are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word through there, as insignificant as it seems to us, is very important because it is suggesting that, that this gift of grace, the, the gift that we talked about last week, is delivered through a certain door, the death of Jesus. In other words, there's a barrier to getting this grace to God's people. There's a barrier, and Jesus is the door by which God delivers this forgiveness. It is only through the death of Christ that God can even give us this gift. Why? Because God is both love and justice. This morning, we have made our way to the very heart of the gospel. And that is that man is made right with God through justification by faith. That man is justified by faith. This is the third sola, the third only, justification alone. That man can be justified or made right with God through faith alone. Last week we saw and scratched our heads some as we tried to get our minds around the fact that this whole package is delivered as a gift of God's grace. But this week we're going to try to see how does God pull this off? How does he deliver this? How does God solve this massive dilemma between his goodness and his justice when you have a sinner that's thrown into the middle? Today we're going to try to answer the question, how can sinners 
be made right with God and God remain good and just? How can sinners be made right with God and God remain just? Or as Paul puts it there in verse 26 of chapter 3, how can God be both just and a justifier? Romans chapter 3 is Paul's answer to that question. Paul is explaining the Christian answer that every single person, I believe, of every single religion, even those who are secular, asks, how can man be made right with God? I believe it's a question that not only does every religion ask, but every person, even secular persons, ask, how can I be okay? Am I good enough? Am I all right? We've talked about this earlier in the year in our Gospel for Daily Living series. And in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has gone through a tirade, and he's making it very clear what the answer to this question is, that every single human being stands guilty before God. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. You know this probably. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul, sa- Paul says that not only have all sinned, but they know it. Chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says that deep down everyone knows this because God has written his law onto our hearts and so that every one of us, our hearts actually condemn us. We know we're not okay. I was reading a story recently about this is the most guilty generation in American, America history, American's history. Not that we've done worse stuff, though that's debatable, but that we feel the most guilty. Even though mankind and our society has tried to get rid of God, who supposedly is the culprit of all this guilt, yet the guilt remains. We know that we are guilty. And that's what every man is trying to determine. How can I be okay? How can I be right with God? Of course, different faiths, different teachers, different thinkers have answered this question differently. But they really all boil down to just two different options. There are really only two types of religion in the world, as we have heard sung about this morning in a sense. There's a religion of human achievement. Man does something to be made right with God. Or there's a religion of divine achievement. God does something to make man right with God. Judaism was a religion of human achievement. And Paul has just spent a remarkable amount of time, if you've read the first couple chapters of Romans, explaining how all of the Jews' efforts and all of, by default, or by uh, extension, all of our efforts to be good, all of our efforts to be good, upright, moral people fail. They fail in making us okay with God. God's law is too high, and we are not good enough. There's only one way, Paul says, to be made right with God. And you can see that there in verse 21. He says, now the righteousness of God, the rightness, the okayness with God, comes in a different way. It has been made manifested apart from the law. And then he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here is our answer to the question. How can man be made righteous? How can you be okay? How can you be okay 
with God. What Paul says is that righteousness, that okayness is through faith. It's in a, and not only that, but he says it's a righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness that he gives as a gift of grace. Now, if your head's already spinning, I'm with you. We are swimming in the deep, deep waters of the gospel. And it's a good place to feel overwhelmed. Because this, my brothers and sisters, is justification by faith. That's what we're going to explore this morning. We're asking the question, how can sinners be made right with God and God not become a bad judge? How can sinners be made right with God and God remain good? But to feel feel the weight of this question, we've got to understand what's going on. That's why I gave the imaginary scenario of a loving father who is also a just judge. We might think, why can't God just forgive us? Why, why can't he just sweep our sins under the rugs? I've heard that he's got some sea of forgetfulness. Why doesn't he just throw our sins there when we be done with it? Why did Jesus have to die? Rebecca Piper tells this story. She says, Once I was in a courtroom and I heard a person who was being sentenced for a crime. On the one hand, a crime had been committed and the person had to pay. But just as the judge was giving the sentence, a middle-aged man in the audience broke into racking sobs. Clearly, he was the father of the person on trial. This, it occurred to me, was someone's grown-up child, a child still treasured and adored by a father. At that moment, even the judge paused, but he had his job to do, so he resumed sentencing. The judge's job is to sentence, but the parent's heart is to stand for the child. Do you feel the dilemma of justice and love for sinners? In our day and age, we are wired to think that love is better than justice. So we're willing to give justice a pass for the sake of love. Author Bill Hybels addresses this. He says it like this. You say that you can't conceive of a God who would ever punish anyone. That wouldn't be loving. But you've got to understand God's justice. If I was to back into your car, right, to go back into the door of your new car out in the parking lot, and if we went to court and the judge said, ah, that's no problem, he didn't really mean it, you'd be up in arms. You would want justice. Or if you went to a Cubs baseball game and the pitcher threw a strike right down the middle of the plate and the umpire said, ball four, and walked in a run, you'd be out there furious. You would want justice. You see, you might hear that and say, yeah, I guess you're right. I I want a God that's just. I don't want an unjust God. But before you say rah, rah, rah for a just God, remember this implication. That means that God meets out justice for you and me. Do you see the dilemma of salvation? How can sinners be made right with God and God remain good? Well, the answer to that question is justification. Not only does this make a way for God's love, not only does it open up a door for God's love, and not only does it vindicate his justice so he doesn't become a wicked God, but it reveals to us so much about the very heart of God our Father and his nature. 
So this morning, I do feel like I need to warn you, we do have some, some heavy ideas to talk about. My head has been spinning even as I preach it, and I imagine that your head may spin as you hear it. But we're going to try, with God's help, to answer these three questions about justification by faith. What is justification? It's important, right? It's in the Bible. What is justification and how is it just? And thirdly, how can I get it? Who can be justified? Let's start with the first. What is justification? It's important to know. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal word. And it is a declaration of righteousness. It's an important idea to understand. That when God justifies us, he is making a legal pronouncement. Nathan, you're not guilty. Which is an amazing thing for us because as we just said in verse 23, Nathan is guilty. We're all guilty, all of us. We stand on trial, rightly so, for sins, for sins that we have committed before God who is a just judge. And we're all guilty. We all know it. You know it. And God knows it. Yet according to verse 24, we can be pronounced not guilty. We can be justified by grace. Justification is another way of saying that we are right. That when it comes to the law and our relationship to it, that God declares us to be righteous in relation to the law. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to officiate a wedding up in Kingsport. And during that wedding, I made a legal declaration. I said, by the power invested in me by the state of Tennessee, I now pronounce you husband and wife. All right? Well, I mean, what took place? We've all seen this take place. There is an instant change in their legal status because of a declaration. An instant change in their legal status because of their declaration. One moment, they were individual citizens in the eyes of the state. But after the declaration, they were now married in the eyes of the state. They had changed in their relationship to the law. And that's what God does for us. He declares a change in our legal status. That in the eyes of the divine judge, we are to be considered as innocent and treated accordingly. Here's another example that might be helpful. When a jury is listening to a case and when they are delivering a verdict about uh, someone who is accused, when a jury stands and delivers a verdict, if, if he stands and says, this man is guilty, they are not making the man guilty, right? What made the man guilty was whether or not he committed a crime. The jury doesn't make him guilty. The declaration doesn't make him guilty, which makes sense even if they got it wrong. What made him guilty was what he did. Instead, they are declaring how he will be viewed in the eyes of the court. And that's an important distinction for us, very different than our Catholic friends. Justification does not change a person's nature. He is still a sinner. This is why I can say I am a sinner and justified before God. This is amazing to me, right? This is amazing. It doesn't change the nature of a person. He's still a sinner. Paul, if you flip over to Romans chapter 4, verse 5, Paul reminds us who it is that God unjustifies. The ungodly. God justifies ungodly people. He says that ungodly people 
are now godly, or at least not ungodly at this point. It's a change in their legal status. Declaration, the declaration itself does not make us righteous, and God will take care of that too. It's called sanctification. He works that out too. But isn't this amazing that God can justify and is willing to justify the ungodly? Look, y'all don't know the kind of stuff I've done. You don't know how ungodly I am. And the fact that God justifies the ungodly amazes me. But that brings us to the question, how is this just? How is justification just? We can't do this in our courts, right? It would, be, it would make the judge unjust. How can God do what we cannot even do? How can God justify the ungodly? We've already said he can't just declare that we're not guilty. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't pretend that he doesn't know what I've done, that he doesn't see our sin. Did you know that in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 17, the scriptures actually say that, listen to this, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to, to the Lord. Did you hear that? He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Is God an abomination to the Lord? How does this work? How can this be? How can justification be just? Well, the answer to this is Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, God makes a double exchange. If you want a fancy word for this, it's called double imputation. That God imputes our sins to Jesus and then imputes Jesus' righteousness to us. God makes a swap. He swaps our sins with Jesus' righteousness. Think about this first part first, that God imputes our sins to Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the scriptures say, For our sake he made Jesus to be sin. He made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. That is, that for all who will repent and believe, God put all of their sins onto Jesus' record. That God judicially reckoned Christ to have committed every single one of those sins. Just think of it. Every bitter thought, every lustful thought, every evil deed, every failure to obey were placed upon Christ. Christ became a sinner. He became sin itself. And since God cannot let sin go unpunished, he cannot let Christ go unpunished. You see, though sinners like you and I can go unpunished, sin will never go unpunished. Though sinners can go unpunished, sin will never go unpunished. God will punish every single sin that has ever been committed, either on the cross, praise God, or in hell. This is the way that his divine justice is satisfied. This is the way that God does not become a crooked judge. When Christ died on the cross, he bore the full wrath of God for my sins and for all who would believe in him. And this is how, according to verse 25, this is how God demonstrates his righteousness. It says that 
in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. But that's only part of the story. It's not enough that you just don't have any sins to your name. It's not enough that you don't have a charge placed against you. You actually have to be righteous too. Do you hear me? If Jesus only died for our sins, we would never be saved. If Jesus only died for our sins, we would never be saved. And that's because God's requirement is not simply that you be morally neutral. It's not simply don't sin. It's also be perfect. It's also be righteous. You see, it's not enough that you simply don't disobey the law. You have to also keep it perfectly. And God's law requires that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. So God does not only impute our sins to Christ, but he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Jesus gets our sin, we get his obedience. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Look over at this. This is an important text for us this morning. Romans 4, verse 4, it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, look, his faith is counted or credited as righteousness. This is the gospel, that God gives away his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. His track record. His obedience. We failed to get it through the law. So God gives it to us as a gift. To the one who believes, he is credited as with righteousness. This is where the second half of 2 Corinthians 5.21 comes into play. For that Christ made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Elsewhere in the Bible, this is illustrated in the idea of getting new clothes, of getting new clothes. Perhaps you've heard the children's story, the story of a peasant boy who was on his way to see the king. Since he was going to see the king, he was wearing his best clothes, his Sunday best. But on the way to the palace, the horse that he was riding stumbled and the boy fell into the mud, staining and ruining his best clothes. Pitifully, he stood up and tried to wipe the mud off his clothes, but it really only made matters worse. But he went anyway, and when he arrived at the palace, the, the king's servants saw him. They said, hey, there's, you can't come in here. There's no way you can come in here. Look at you. Well, the boy pleads and pleads. They say, no, the king can't see you wearing dirty clothes like that, so they try to send him away, but the boy pleads and pleads. And finally, they they agree to take the boy's case to the prince. And the prince says, give the boy a bath, clean him, and then give him my royal robes. Dress him in my clothes, and then he can stand before the king. Brothers and sisters, when Christ forgives us, he not only washes away the stain of sin, but he gives us clothes to wear. We can't stand before the king naked, 
So he also gives us his royal robes of righteousness that we may stand before the king unashamed. This is why Isaiah the prophet exclaims in song in Isaiah chapter 61, My soul shall exalt in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is the gospel. This great, mind-boggling, double exchange. Jesus gets my sin, and I get his obedience. Jesus dies the death that you deserve, and you get the eternal life that he earned. For those who are in Jesus, we are justified. Meaning, as we have said before, that God sees us just as if we had never sinned and always if we had obeyed. Just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had always obeyed. But the question still remains for us. How can we be justified? Does God do this for everyone? Is everyone to be saved? How can man be Justify? How can we get this justification? Over whom does God make this legal declaration of not guilty? And think about it like this How can a work which took place 2,000 years ago, a work that was external to us, that took place without our knowledge, without our cooperation, without our awareness, without our assistance, how can that work that Jesus did be personally applied to you and me? How does that happen? What is it that triggers the great exchange of my sins for Christ's righteousness? The Bible's answer for that, not just in Romans, but all throughout the scriptures, is faith. It's a church word. A lot of people talk about it, don't really know much about what it means, but faith. Faith alone is how man can be justified in Christ. Faith alone is what unites us to Christ and connects us to his life and his death and his resurrection. It's how you tap into the benefits and the merits of Christ. This is the central theme of the book of Romans, particularly here in chapter 3. Look at several verses. Look down at chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God is what? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Look again at verse 25. Justification is to be received by faith. Look again at 26. Christ is the justifier of who? The one who has faith. This is just a sampling of how Paul is making it clear, as clear as he can, that man is not justified by the law. He's not justified based on how he acts or how he obeys or what he says or the prayers he prays. Man is justified by faith. In chapter 4, I think Paul understands that this is confusing and hard to understand. Paul is often hard to understand. Can I get an amen there? Even, even now. Paul can be hard to understand. So he gives us, as a good teachers do, an illustration He gives us an example of how it is that God justifies by faith using Abraham. Look again at 4.3. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and look, it was counted to him or credited to him or reckoned to him 
as righteousness. Okay, so how did Abraham get God's righteousness? By believing God, by faith. God imputes his righteousness to Abraham by means of Abraham's faith. Now, language is going to be very, very important from here on out. We're, I'm making very narrow dis, uh, distinctions with words, so listen carefully. He's saying that works had nothing to do with it. Paul's making this clear. Look back again at verse 4 and 5. He says, now, to the one who works, his wages are what? They're not counted as a gift, right? They're his due. Have you ever felt like your employer was giving you a gift in a paycheck after you slaved away working for him? No, you earned it, right? He says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is working to make sure that no works creep their way into the gift of, of justification. And he uses a very powerful argument. He is saying, essentially, he says, if our salvation was dependent on any work at all, whether that's trying to keep the law or being baptized or being a church member or praying a certain prayer or giving to bring him a home or, uh, or even faith itself, then it couldn't be a gift. Instead, salvation would be owed in the same way your employer owes you a paycheck for work that you've done. If salvation was a conditional arrangement, it would not be a gift but a wage. If it was, you do this, and then I, God, will give you salvation. Or if you believe this, and then I, God, will give you salvation. Then it becomes a wage. This is something that I've struggled to understand for a long time. Listen to this carefully. Faith in Christ is not the ground of a believer's righteousness. It is the means. It is the, faith is the instrument by which we receive God's righteousness. I know that's hard to understand, but let's, I think it's important. And so let's try, to make this impl- let's try to make this clear. Because many people believe incorrectly that they are righteous because they have faith. That is, their hope for heaven rests upon the fact that they were smart enough to believe the gospel. But that tiny distinction actually undermines the gospel as a gift. It turns it from being a gift into a wage. We are not saved because we have faith. We are saved through faith. I admit it's complicated, but let me offer an imperfect illustration to try to clarify this. It's an illustration that theologian Wayne Grudem uses to try to explain the difference of faith as an instrument not as the ground for salvation, okay? Faith is the instrument of salvation, not the ground for salvation. Think of it like this. Think of how you and I receive our paychecks for work that we've done at our jobs. The instrument that we use to get the paycheck is to reach out our hand, take the envelope from the mailbox, open it up, and take out the check. But your employer is not paying you for taking the check, right? He's paying you for work that you've already done. 
Now, in our case, Christ is the one who did the work. Let's get that straight, right? But he's paying us for work that we have already done. Taking the check does not earn you a single cent. It was simply the instrument or the means for receiving the money. That's how our faith works. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the gift of justification itself, but the faith itself does not gain any approval from God. The Reformers, I think it was Martin Luther, I'm not sure, the Reformers put it like this. They said that faith is like an empty hand that God places our salvation into. Our righteousness does not, does not come because of our faith, because then that would mean that our faith itself would become a work, a righteousness of our own, as Paul says, I think, in Philippians. You see, if our righteousness was dependent on us doing anything, even believing, it would no longer be a gift, but a wage. This actually serves, I believe, as a comfort for us. That God does not declare us righteous because of our faith, but by our faith. I mean, think about it like this. When has your faith in Christ ever been perfect? Does it not waver? Do you not have bad days? Do you not have doubts? God does not save us because of our faith, but through our faith. The great theologian B.B. Warfield put it like this. This blew my mind when I read it. And it's complicated, so listen carefully. See if you can track the distinction here. The saving power of faith resides not in itself, but in the Savior upon whom it rests. It is never on account of faith's formal nature as an intellectual act that faith is conceived in Scripture to be saving. As if this frame of mind or religious attitude of heart were itself a virtue with claims upon God for a reward. He goes on to say, it is not, listen carefully, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus. Actually, it is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power of faith resides not in the act of faith or in the attitude of faith, but in the object of faith. Christ alone saves sinners by faith. What does all this mean? If you don't, if you don't understand that quote, that's fine. What does all this mean? Let's make sure we've got it clear. God does all the work, so God gets all the glory. God does all the giving, and the giver gets the glory. It means that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, so that no man may boast. How do we respond to all this? Besides scratching our head over hard theological words, how do we respond to all this? Well, we pray and we plead, God, open my mind to understand your word. God, I, I'm, a, I'm a mediocre communicator. God is a perfect communicator, right? God is a good writer. He communicates well. So ask him to open up your mind to understand things that are difficult. But how do we as a church respond to this? If you 
do not know Christ, if you still trust in your own merits to be okay, if you think that you can stand before God and that you're going to be good because you've done whatever, I heard one pastor say, it's like you're holding a Kleenex to the sun. You need a Savior. Salvation is for those who place their faith in Christ, that he would be the one who does all the work and all the saving so that he would get the glory. So the scriptures teach, turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ. And for those of us who have already done this, let us marvel at God in all of the beauty of his character. And let us marvel that we were once ungodly. In fact, we are still godly. The cry of the Reformation was, if I remember correctly, I am a sinner, but I am justified. I am a justified sinner. Do you remember that you are both a sinner and both justified? Let us marvel at the grace of God as we respond to his word. I'm going to ask Tony and the musicians to come forward and to lead us in a time of response. But I'd like to ask each one of you to bow your head and to close your eyes and to consider what is God calling you to do? What attitudes about him and about his gospel do you need to change? In what ways have you been bored by his beauty? And let me encourage you to, to exalt in the God of salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these glorious, lofty truths so that none of us would be defending ourselves or boasting in our own works, whether that be things we've done or things that we've said or things that we think and believe. But let us trust solely in Christ, upon whom our rock is and on whom we stand. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. The front will be open if you would like to pray or speak with a pastor. Respond to God's word in your heart this morning.